0: Hey everyone, and welcome back to Risky Business. My name's Patrick Gray, and Adam Boileau will be joining us in just a moment to talk through all the security news of the last few weeks, and then we'll be hearing from this week's sponsor, Netrix. And uh, Netrix is the PAM vendor that acquired our long-term sponsor, Remediant. Uh, Netrix's VP of product strategy, Martin Canard, is this week's sponsor guest, and we'll be talking about how PAM has changed and why working towards the goal of zero standing privilege is the future of. That is coming up later, but first up, it is time for a check of the uh, news that we missed while we were on break with Adam Boileau, and uh, buddy... You know, we've been on break a couple of weeks, and normally when we do that, something catastrophic happens, but it looks like we got off pretty light this time around. Uh, we still do have plenty of like technology-related news to get through, but I wanted to start off this week uh, by talking about some government stuff. And um, yeah, it looks like the SEC is pursuing some SolarWinds executives personally. Uh, they've sent letters to their SolarWinds CISO and a couple of others, and it looks like some sort of enforcement action's coming. Uh, what do you think about all of this?
1: Well, we've seen the SEC nosing around um, with solar winds before. Obviously, you know the, the solar winds breaches were pretty high profile, and everyone wanted to get uh, get in on the action there with regulation and so on. But uh, I guess going after individual C levels and other management uh, at companies who get hacked is probably going to be a thing that you know we will see more of, and is a concern of you know, a number of people who work in that kind of field uh, in the United States, that they may be, you know, more exposed to personal liability. It's hard to say that that's a bad thing overall, but, you know, the individuals involved in SolarWinds, you know, it's kind of hard to say whether, you know, and also we don't really know the nature of the enforcement that the SEC are going to do here. It could be a slap on the wrist, it could be more serious. um, But, you know, that kind of liability shift towards individuals probably overall is a good thing.
0: Overall, maybe, and you know, we got to keep in mind we don't know what the SEC yes. knows yeah, about yeah. this, right? Like, uh, it just it just made me think about the whole whole uh, Joe Sullivan saga, yes. where yes. people were yeah. like, "Oh, this will have a chilling effect," and blah 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 blah, and people were very panicky about it. But ultimately, what he did was was very silly, and um, that's how he wound up uh, in in a lot of trouble for it. We won't really be able to form a proper opinion on this until we actually see what the SEC is alleging was done here. Yes. So they're saying that they're, they're looking into the company's internal controls as well as its disclosure controls and procedures. So I guess this is one of those things that, you know, we we just won't know uh, for a while, Right.
1: Yeah, I mean, all we've seen so far is that they've been sent Wells notices, which is kind of part of the process where the SEC notifies companies or individuals that they're going to be potentially subject to some kind of I think action. I think this is the
0: SEC equivalent of putting a horse's head in their bed, Yes, uh, sending them a Wells <laughs> yeah, notice, yeah. right? <laughs> exactly. And,
1: you know, the range of things that could happen here is very large. Like, it could absolutely be a, you know, tut-tut, through to a, you know, you're never going to work in this town ever again. Um, and we don't really know. You know, as you said, we're just going to have to wait and see what happens. But, you know, anything that does make individual executives more liable for the cyber does have the potential to change things, even if it's not quite... um, you know, as hysterical as we saw after the Joe Sullivan situation.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, it, it is interesting that the company for its part has said, wow, 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 we're awesome. You know, we did everything right. No one could have foreseen these, you know, hackers from Mars, well, Russia, uh, coming after <laughs> us and doing all of this. And it also says, oh, you know, the, the enforcement action here will make the industry less secure. And here's the quote, by having a chilling effect on cyber incident disclosure, I think they've got that backwards, right? Because once the SEC <laughs> goes after people for failing to disclose, I don't think that means there's going to be less Less disclosures,
1: no, probably not. Fewer, uh, and excuse this, <laughs> me, fewer disclosures. Fewer, fewer disclosures, uh, and we're certainly just going to keep on seeing hacking and, and you know its relationship to the market and investors and shareholders and so on. Like that's the job of the SEC to make a fair and transparent and workable system out of.
0: Mm -mm. Now, look, another story uh, involving governments here. And uh, while we were on break, there was a new regulation introduced into the United Kingdom that will make banks there liable for fraud uh, uh, targeting their customers, right? So, I mean, I personally know people who've been defrauded of substantial amounts of money usually older people uh just of of the ones that i know substantial amounts of money where you know someone rings them up and says hey we're the bank and someone's got control of your account and you need to transfer money to your family member's account and oh you don't have their details here it is and you know they transfer the money out and i've watched the bank's response when that sort of fraud is reported i mean It could be reported the next day, and I'm talking about in in Australia, and, you know, this is a transfer to another Australian bank, and they just say, oh, sorry, you know, money's gone. And what the UK is saying here is that's just not good enough, and there is a similar push here to make banks liable uh, for, for this type of fraud. Look, I think this is a really good thing because... Of all of the organisations on the planet that are best positioned to tackle this sort of stuff, it's the banks. Now, is this going to be costly for them? Probably, but are they going to get a handle on this now that they're properly incentivised? Incentivised, absolutely. I think the worst thing that we're we're going to deal with as a result of this regulatory change in the UK is perhaps transfers will be slowed down a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think that you know you really hit the nail on the head, right? I mean it's in the ideal world people should be responsible for managing their accounts and managing their access and the devices that they use and all those sorts of things but the real world scenario is that there are plenty of people who are you know who don't necessarily understand all the technology and perhaps nor should they have to to be able to just use the banking system. But it's and not even the-
0: about understanding the technology. It's just that there's an entire industry, criminal industry that's popped up that, is, that is, solely exists to tricking people yes. into transferring stuff into different accounts. And the bank's response processes are just completely inadequate because they don't have skin in the game.
1: Yes, exactly. And that's one of the things I liked about this UK proposal is that um, the money that the banks would have to pay to refund fraudulent transactions is actually split between the originating bank and the destination bank. Uh, So they've both got skin in it and they both then have to kind of cooperate to do fraud detection to reverse transactions to do whatever all the things they can do. Whereas previously if you try to make it one or the other end's problem, then they're very good at saying, well, okay, it's the other bank's problem. Uh, so yeah, making I mean, everybody in,
0: in, in the one that I was was involved with here, the money went from Commonwealth to City. And, you know, obviously you 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 make the complaint with Commonwealth then they tell City, and then you just have to wait like ninety days, and then eventually they come back and say, "Oh well, City lost the money. Nothing we can do. We got no insight into what happened there. Sorry, bye." That's not good enough.
1: No, no. So I, yeah, I think this is. It's going to be really interesting to see how this works out. I mean, there is some um, argument that you know, maybe it would make it a more attractive target because banks are, you know, people are individually less liable, banks are more liable, but I don't know that I buy that. Like, that was the argument that was, that's no. been made in other places is that you're just going to encourage fraudsters to come here. They're already here. They're already taking a whole bunch of money, making, you know, in some cases, billions of dollars. So, you know, stopping it pragmatically by making the banks use their fraud detection techniques and improve their processes, I think this is a good, a good plan. Yeah, Um, I'm not sure if this is just a
0: consumer protection regulation or if it's also going to apply to BEC and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, I think it is broadly a positive thing. Um, And you're quite right. This hasn't started yet. It starts next year, but they announced the regulation uh, while we were on break and it kicks off next year so let's yeah let's see if that works but i have a feeling that that it will you know they will fight it tooth and nail here everywhere where there's a banking lobby this will be fought i mean i've been up against the australian banking association when i was a news journalist you know and they are just <laughs> they're, they're ima- exactly what you imagine banking yes. <laughs> a banking cartel <laughs> lobbyist group to be like you know they they lobbyist enters you can smell the sulfur kind of thing you
1: know? <laughs> yeah indeed there's you know there are arguments back from australian banks in this write-up that we have from ABC in Australia, um, already trying to, you know, prepare the battle space, as they would say yes. in the in the US mill, uh, for this coming down the pipe. But, you know, I would be surprised if this doesn't result in improvement in the UK, and then I think we would see other countries follow suit. So what else have we got?
0: Oh, yeah, we've got an, a proposal in the UK, and uh, the government there is considering doing this which would allow the GCHQ access to some metadata within the UK to combat fraud right and it's it's not a scary proposal it's actually some pretty clever thinking so there's an idea in here where they say look you could look for devices that are communicating with banks and also communicating with command and control servers for known banking malware so that you could then, you know, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff you could do with that sort of information. You could give that information to the bank and say this, you know, your customer's device is compromised. You could contact the customer directly. But this is the sort of stuff they're talking about. I get that there'll be some people who will say, no, we can't let them do domestic surveillance. Wow. But it seems like a pretty sensible use of data that's already been collected.
1: Yeah, it sounds like the vibe you get from this is that there was a, you know, a desire in the political class to come up with some kind of, you know, we've got to do something about this. And then somebody at GCHQ went, well, I I guess we could and came up with a bunch of ideas for using metadata, uh, you know, to spot indicators of fraud or or whatever else. And then, like, the plumbing of turning that into an actual functioning system was a lot of nuance and detail. But at a high level, you know, it seemed like GCHQ is probably better equipped, uh, to deal with this kind of problem, you know, from a technical perspective than anyone else, and then, you know, you're going kind to of have to figure out how to make all the other parts of the ecosystem work. But it's a really interesting idea to be able to do this on a national scale. And, you know, the the size of the fraud problem is big enough that we have to think of, you know, somewhat out of the box solutions yeah. and traditional security and intelligence apparatus has a lot of the tools that you could use to address these kinds of problems.
0: Yeah, I mean, it reminds me a little bit, uh, and this was an Alexander Martin story from from the record. It reminds me a bit of some of the conversations I've had with Andrew Morris. Actually, I mean, this is different, but you'll see where I'm going in a second. Where, you know, Gray Noise's whole thing is they want to get to the point where they're partnering with enough telcos that it makes that they've made mass scanning or mass exploitation basically really really difficult to do on the internet at all because you're going to get snapped immediately. Now, if you've got a, an environment where as soon as someone discovers your C2 they've now got a capability that can find all of the endpoints that are communicating with it and distribute that information to the banks to prevent those things from logging in and doing fraud i mean you've actually just made you know you've introduced some real risks for the attacker in in making your country a you know uh, a priority right
1: yes yeah i mean that's a, it's a great example like a great comparison of being able to you know, you're going to burn your stuff so quickly that it introduces very real costs to the adversaries. Yeah. And, yeah, I think it's like, you know, the 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 cypherpunk of many years ago in me still, you know, says, oh, my God, they can't, you know, look at every NetFlow record and then start feeding real-time information to other government agencies or whatever else. But the reality is it's a, actually quite a sensible proposal to do yeah. that and solves very well, real I mean- problems and, you know...
0: Yeah, I mean, Tom and I often often have these conversations about like what's government for, right? And yes, you could ma- you can make a slippery slope argument ab- out of basically anything. And I just I-, I think there will be people who will try to turn this into oh, it's mass surveillance, but really, yeah. it's a it seems to me, and and by the sounds of things, it seems to you to be a fairly sensible proposal.
1: Yeah, I mean, the cost of internet fraud is so high. And Mm -hmm. if we can solve it one way or the other, even if it has, you know, the whiff of surveillance, you know, you just put some rules around it and blah, 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 blah. But, I mean, you know, if there were some straightforward sets of rules, you know, that you can spin up like that, you know, concurrent use of a banking website and a fraud C2, like, you know, it's pretty sensible. So Yeah,
0: Yeah, I mean, I would like to know, wouldn't you? Yes. You know, if my device was communicating with a malware command and control, uh, I would I would like to know that. So anyway, our final sort of big government story that I wanted to talk about this week is there are some changes happening in uh, the US. This this story is by Christian Vasquez at CyberScoop. He did a terrific job on this one, um, and it's looking at how in the utilities. Sector in the United States, the prices they can charge are really tightly regulated by the government. And what's happening is there's some rule changes happening, which will allow some of these utilities to charge more uh, if that money is going to be used for security programs to do certain things. And you know, you read this piece and you realize, look, this seems like a pretty smart uh, application of regulation because you know utilities they have so many customers they don't really need to raise their prices by all that much to raise a lot of money and this is really about expanding their margins just for a very specific purpose which is increased security spending and then some some guidelines on what that spending should be and you just read this and you think no this is this is this seems pretty good this seems pretty sensible
1: Yeah, and in that kind of utility space, right, it's also a very slow-moving environment, so making any changes is a very, very long process, and, you know, some of the problems they have to address in terms of cyber are fast-moving problems, where, you know, right now it's very difficult to go make a business case to invest in this kind of control or that kind of thing, and because it takes so long, it means the, like, organizational risks of doing those processes is very, very high, and so having some support from the regulator to say, like, here is a set of things you could try doing. And, like, one of the examples of things that they would permit you to raise rates to fund is, like, joining the ISAC, like the local information exchange uh, for utilities, which, you know, that seems like a pretty big no-brainer. But even (laughs) something as simple as that, right, it is complicated in utilities because of... You know, that sort of very risk averse, very long term thinking uh, that they are used to doing and having to operate in the modern world is challenging for them culturally. So any way we can support it makes sense. And I think, you know, a very small rate change for consumers you know, can make a big difference because, as you say, of the scale.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's it. Now, of course, while we were away, there were a, a gajillion uh, ransomware incidents, as <laughs> usual, course. that we've, yeah, <laughs> I mean, so so the way it works, for those who who are curious, is um, one of our staffers does a daily scrape of, of news articles in cybersecurity and puts them in a big document um, for us to then go and go through and pick out the ones that we want to talk about in the show, and you know, we came back from a couple of weeks off with a, you know something like 12 or 13 pages of links to news articles and <laughs> a lot of them were ransomware. But there were two that were interesting for a couple of reasons. One was a Japanese port, the port of Nagoya, uh, which accounts for about 10% of container shipping in, um, in Japan. They were ransomware and actually had to shut down uh, for a couple of days. But the interesting thing is they didn't pay and they were back up and running in two days. And that is... That's a good news story uh, from where I sit. When the the disruption was, okay, sure, you know, massively disruptive event, but they managed to get back up and running. Uh, the other one was um, Petro Canada. All of their, you know, service stations had uh, problems with payments and whatever. They had a massive, horrible ransomware incident also back up and running uh, after a couple of days. But So we know that the Japanese port has said that they didn't pay. I don't know that Petro Canada has said the same thing. I did a quick Google around this morning. I couldn't find anything, Um, but it is my guess that they probably did not pay, right? So what we are seeing now, um, you know, it's mixed news, right? Because what we're seeing now is a lot of these bigger organizations with more mature security teams and whatever, uh, they're getting back up and running. And they're not paying. Whereas the, you know, community colleges and whatever, you know, they're the ones getting nuked. Not sure if they're paying or not. But it just seems like big enterprise with competent security teams are the ones who are, you know, being disrupted but not flattened by ransomware these days.
1: Yes. I think that's probably a reasonable assessment. And it is good that people are getting to the point where recovery is an you know is a practical option. Um, and also I guess, you know, the sort of um social pressure to not pay has been ratcheting up over the years like it's generally seen as a bit less acceptable you know to go down to your local uh, you know chamber of commerce and brag to your biz buddies that you paid off a ransom you know that's not the not so much the vibes uh, anymore whereas perhaps it might have been seen differently some time ago um Of course, one does wonder, you know, how good are we at evicting people? Um, You know, because that's real fiddly, especially in big networks. And I mean, Petro Canada is part of Suncor, which is a giant energy conglomerate with tendrils all over North America. Like evicting someone from a complex environment, you know, you want to be pretty sure. I mean, you you don't have to to evict them from
0: everywhere, though. You just have to evict them from the places where they can do serious damage. And I think, though, that there's enough. There's there are enough people in the consulting space now who are used to, you know, incident responders who are used to dealing with this, that I think eviction is probably more achievable, like with the right external consultants, is probably going to be a bit easier now than it was even just a couple of years ago. Because it's become such a a critical thing that people, it's a service people need. (laughs) Please come and and kick the Russians out of my network, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I look at the skill level of, you know, some of the incident response team here at CyberCX that – you know, some of the operations they have to pull to evict people out of networks. Like, there's some. It's hard work, but they're also very good at it. And that kind of understanding. You know, there are, as you say, a bunch of people that do have that expertise now. But you know, when you look at the, uh, you know, the head towards, um, you know, EFI and boot sectors and and you know, uh, well, hardware yeah, we'll be, based things, we have to we'll track the about hardware, yeah. you, you know, yeah. that's that. Maybe we're in a sweet spot where eviction is a reasonable option at the moment, and maybe we should enjoy that sweet spot while it lasts.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think the TLDR, and we'll get to this later, which is, uh, you know, if you're a crook, um, it's time to start really learning how UEFI works. uh, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The TLDR. Uh, An interesting one here from John Grieg over at The Record where some European hospital wound up getting a whole bunch of malware spread around on it via USB. It looks like it was some sort of Chinese APT malware where someone from the hospital went to a conference in Asia and this USB-based malware was targeting Southeast Asian targets and whatever, you know, they they used it on someone's laptop to do a, you know, to put their slide deck for the conference or whatever, brought it back to the hospital and it's just been doing the rounds at this hospital. And you think, you know, I mean, this is, we we saw something similar with Stuxnet, right, like a long time ago. Um, The difference was that Stuxnet would spread but not really do anything. It would propagate, but oh, hang on, you're not you're not a uranium enrichment plant in, in advance. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to do anything, right? Whereas this thing looks like it was, you know, getting on everyone's box and start <laughs> and, and exfiltrating information back to Beijing, yeah. right?
1: <laughs> yeah, not great. And you know, those kinds of conferences. I mean, I I spoke at a conference once uh, where there turned out to be USB-born malware on the AV systems of the like intercontinental hotel here in Wellington, which then ended up propagating into people's corporate networks and stuff. Um, so like, you know, anywhere where you're handing USB sticks around, still kinda risky. Uh, but I think it was
0: know, I like, think it was IBM that was handing out like pre-infected USB by accident um, at Ossert. That's I think right. it was IBM. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah that yeah. was a long time ago. And, <laughs> the, and Ossert got really annoyed with me for actually writing that up as a story. Um, <laughs> but that's just how they were back then. They were like yeah. super salty, you know.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's interesting that, you know, controlling the distribution of, you know, hardware traversing malware, like malware that traverses via people plugging stuff in, physically moving things around, a la the, you know, 80s virus era, is still very much a thing. Um, And I, you know, I I, kind of like it in a way. You know, there's something old school about physically passing malware around that I like, even though having a hospital in Europe home, not ideal.
0: Yeah, but I mean, this comes back to the fact that China is not particularly responsible when it comes to a lot of these operations i mean you look at the hafnium stuff you look at uh the more recent stuff with uh god what crap where was it it wasn't sonic wall what was it a barracuda yeah yeah yeah. sorry they all blend into one in my brain right so yeah the barracuda stuff more recently hafnium and then stuff like this and you think you know come on you've got lawyers can you can you just not can you just not do stuff like this please you don't need to just don't be lazy (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah it it does seem contrary to the sort of norms that you know western intelligence agencies and so on have to abide by you know in terms of being responsible with where their stuff ends up and what happens even stuck in notwithstanding um but you know that was a somewhat joint operation should we say uh, and it was also 12 years ago, and they did also actually a put some occurred. stuff in the yes. malware to make it not
0: harmful yes. when yes. it did propagate to systems that weren't its, you know, intended targets. I mean, I, I'm just getting at the fact that, and you know, the tricky thing for the West is you can't respond to something like this by going and malwaring a whole bunch of Chinese hospitals because that's no. illegal. So, yes. you know, it proportional just would be nice but if China, illegal. <laughs> yes, exactly. So it would be nice if China would put a little bit more thought into how to stop these sorts of things from happening.
1: Yeah, it's rude for China. Rude, yeah. very rude.
0: Microsoft has nuked uh, over a hundred malicious drivers, Adam. And look, I've looked into this a little bit. You've looked into it a lot more. Uh, some of these drivers were got signed with like stolen certificates and stuff. But one of the ways that they could get them into a state where they would be loadable into Windows was by like backdating the signing or something. Can you, can you walk us through all of this? Because it's uh, still a bit fuzzy for me.
1: Yeah, so uh, the Windows hardware certification process will sign drivers for vendors' hardware, and that's you know we've had signing driver signing for a while. And at some point, I think maybe during the Vista era, they introduced some rules so that people who had drivers that worked on Vista but that weren't didn't meet modern requirements were allowed to still be loaded after an upgrade to Windows ten or whatever if they were signed before a certain date, which was like twenty fifteen something. Um, so. If you take a stolen certificate these days and you sign a driver with a stolen certificate, and obviously there's plenty of those around in, in the underground, um, and backdate its signing time to 2015 through using like Windows Detours to hook the timing time process um, during the signing, then, then you bypass a whole bunch of those more modern verifications that Windows does when they sign the driver. So you can sign old drivers you can bring old drivers uh, and use them in ways that they were not intended to do or whatever else so it's a way to bypass the modern security controls and there's a couple of open source tools uh, for doing this time manipulation whilst signing
0: yeah so this looks like it's sprung out of like the game cheat community and then got picked up by apts and you know this is something that you and i have spoken about before which is the quality of research coming out of game cheats is just amazing
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. If you want to load a kernel driver to, you know, manipulate Call of Duty or something in memory and get around the DRM or the anti-cheat, then, yeah, you have to be, you know, pretty pretty sophisticated. Uh, and then, you yeah, know, we've seen these techniques now being picked up by the hacking community and some of the, you know, kernel drivers in place are for things like uh, killing antivirus software, killing endpoint software or, you know, doing other things in kernel space uh, that hackers would like to do.
0: Yeah, I think I misspoke too because I think this has been linked to Chinese the Chinese cyber criminal underground not so much uh, APTs. Um, but yeah, either way it started off with game sheets and uh, that's very interesting. Now look, you know, you can mess around with backdating drivers and doing all of that sort of stuff or you can just go and own a Fortinet uh, appliance, <laughs> Adam. And uh, according to the latest research, I think this was was this Bishop Fox. Yeah, Bishop uh, Fox. Yeah, it was Bishop Fox. They they took a look at the internet and they found three hundred and thirty-six thousand vulnerable Fortigate appliances uh, <laughs> on the internet. So, good news, everyone.
1: Yes, and yeah, exploits. This was the heap vulnerability. I don't think we mentioned it before we went on break because the bug had just come out. But yeah, anyway, there's workable exploits for this. And yeah, you just pointed a Fortinet and you get a root shell job done. Um, yeah. So sixty-nine
0: so, yeah. percent of Fortigate yeah. appliances are apparently like unpatched.
1: Yeah, yeah, some as much as I think what eight years old. Someone said some uh, of the Bishop popped guys. So uh, it's pretty grim. Pretty grim. It
0: is, it is. and I, I just sort of think like if you are building the next you know iteration of a border device, you have to factor this into your thinking. You have to factor this into your plans. I, I don't think anyone could release a device like this that doesn't auto install updates, right? Yes. If you know that a border device like this. Is not going to get patches seventy percent of the time. You know how can you sell it in good conscience?
1: Well, I mean that's a that's a great question. I mean some of the code quality we've seen in these devices in general does suggest uh, that the security of the people who are buying it is not a priority always. And I mean thinking about your ecosystem overall, long term in terms of maintainability as a vendor. Like, that's not a thing that they've ever really prioritized. Well, and that's what I'm saying they need to start doing. (laughs) And Yeah, exactly. Like, they absolutely do need to start thinking holistically and pragmatically. And, you know, the the honest answer is they deserve to fail in the marketplace for having trash solutions. But you don't find that out until seven years after you bought your Fortinet. So market failure.
0: Market failure. We love to bust market out failure. the old market failure. Market failure. Yes, we need, a, we need a meme with the with the button press. Yes, market yeah, exactly.
1: Failure. The big blue button. Market failure. Yeah.
0: <laughs> now, staying with enterprise, absolute enterprise, shit, where uh, CISA has issued a warning. Uh, this was actually just after we went on break. Uh, they've issued a warning that there's uh, active exploitation of VMware Analytics. This has a 9.8 CVSS, which I guess just means you look at it and it gives you shells. Uh, what, what's this bug in exactly?
1: I think this is in a VMware ARIA Operations for Networks, which is like a orchestration tool for managing your cloud across multiple things. So if you have AWS and on-prem VMware and something else, it's for kind of doing cloud orchestration and capacity management and all that kind of thing. Uh, The bug in question was actually kind of not that exciting. Like it's a web service with a badly configured like front-end proxy rule. It lets you kind of like dot slash your way to a different endpoint. uh, And then it's onwards uh, into like command injection. And it's just going to call an underlying shell command and you can inject commands into it and job done. So pretty boring as bugs go, Mm. but it gets you root in someone's cloud orchestrator. So not great.
0: Yeah, and I wonder how many of them are on the internet. Um, Well, yeah. (laughs) Now, another thing, obviously, that happened while we were on break is, you know, hundreds of uh, organizations have been reported as being victimized in the latest file transfer appliance, you know, the move it thing that has been ongoing for a month or something. Um, I think we should just reiterate our advice from April, which is if you're using an on-prem file transfer appliance, uh, you know, it doesn't matter which company it's from because CLOP is going to is doing research into all of the file transfer appliances now, because that is their business model, uh, you need to look at moving to something more modern and cloudy and
1: secure. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the right advice, because, yeah, these things have just, like, they've made such a target for themselves now, and there's a business model for making money out of it, and there's just no reason to stop that gravy train until you run out of file transfer appliances.
0: Yeah, that's right. So uh, get off them. Right, and yes. uh, make everything ephemeral on those appliances. Uh, quick, smart. Now, Adam, you would remember that when we travelled to Canberra to uh, do a live recording of the uh, risky business podcast at the uh, ASA conference, you know the first thing that we spoke about was the horrible state of Evgeny Prigozhin's uh, business network. Right, like his the the computer network that controlled his communications and um, and business interests. And, uh, yeah, we've got a story here from Washington Post about how, I'll just read you the headline, U.S. spies learned in mid-June that Prigozhin was planning an armed action in Russia. Gee, I wonder how they found out about that. That's why I wanted to include this one, because we spoke about the uh, report that came out of the dossier Senate. Yes. Now, Evgeny Prigozhin is obviously the uh, uh, Russian business person, businessman behind uh, a bunch of uh, interests over there, Concord Management Group, uh, the Wagner private military contractor and also the internet research agency uh, troll farm that was instrumental in, in conducting all sorts of interference into the 2016 election in the United States. Um, and yeah, he went on a rampage. With a bunch of his, uh, with thousands of his fighters heading towards Moscow, shooting down aircraft and whatever, you know, unless you are living like hiding out in a cave at the time this was happening, you would have uh, uh, caught the news. But yeah, I mean, it absolutely. Zero surprises here that apparently the American intelligence community saw this coming. But my question for you is, what FSB doing?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. When, uh, you know, clearly they should have had some concerns about uh, Wagner in general. And, you know, you would have thought hacking his computers to go have a look you know, would have been easy and perhaps responsible to do. So that is a very good question of what, what FSB do.
0: Yes, yes. So Prigozhin's network, if you want to go back, listen to that episode, check it out. But his network was basically, you know, a giant flat, unpatched <laughs> Windows network, yes. right, With that was also handling the communication for their not end-to-end encrypted, like secure custom yeah. Android handsets. Like just, yeah. So at, wow, wow, at least the, the USIC at least the, were up in their network. Like yeah. what a surprise.
1: <laughs> at least the NSA didn't have to expend any expensive zero days on it. <laughs> like, it yeah, exactly right. <laughs> oh, Such God. value for taxpayer money.
0: Yeah, um, and uh, look, staying with Prigozhin-related news, there is there have been reports in Russia that he has actually shut down um, P- uh, Patriot or Patriot Media. Uh, His media company, which includes the Internet Research Agency. There are conflicting reports, though, that suggest that uh, the IRA is being sold off to another uh, uh, Russian businessman. Um, So we're not exactly sure what's going on there. There's a a third theory, which kind of incorporates both of them, which is that the powers that be in Russia want him to sell this to someone else, but he's running around firing everyone instead because he doesn't want someone else to have access to his baby. (laughs) And um, yeah, so... Mm. That's the, that's the, the cyber <laughs> angle Russia, on...
1: Russia be crazy as always.
0: Russia be crazy as always. Now, <laughs> this is kind of Wagner-related, although it's more like someone wants us to think that it's mm. Wagner-related. If you listen to <laughs> Risky Business News, uh, you would have heard over the last couple of weeks reports that a uh, Russian SATCOM ISP uh, or telecommunications uh, provider was uh, hacked... And the people claiming credit for the hack said that they were supporting Wagner Group's uh, you know, uh, actions against <laughs> the Russian military, when in fact it was probably a bunch of Ukrainians doing this because they thought it was funny.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I suspect so. And I think the satellite provider was a Dozo Teleport, they're called. Um, and they looked like they did get pretty comprehensively owned, but we didn't really see the you know, Viasat-style, you know, bricking in devices or anything. We saw, like, a bunch of data being leaked, a bunch of stuff being deleted, but, you know, they seem to be back up and running relatively quickly. And this yeah, was, it was a th- few
0: days sort of thing.
1: Yeah, and this is a SACOM provider that was, you know, providing a bunch of stuff to Russian state entities and, and so on as well. So yeah, city,
0: the city of Moscow, the FSB yes. as well, I think, are a customer. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. So a pretty serious business, but they seem to be back up and running faster than you would expect, you know, if they've been properly bricking modems or whatever.
0: Yeah, yeah. But it's just funny that it's like, yes, we are Wagner Group and we did this. <laughs> you know, like it's just like, ah, oh, you got to love the the stirring. Um yeah. but we have got a bunch of stories here about hacktivism, ostensible or otherwise. Yes. Right? And it's interesting because I can't recall a time where we've seen this much. Do you remember 10 years ago hacktivism used to be like people calling themselves anonymous using like off-the-shelf DDoS tools to yes, hit websites, yeah. right? Like that's what we used to call hacktivism. But now we're talking about genuine hacks or DDoSes that actually have some sort of real-world impact. Like there's this one here where uh, uh, the Russian state-owned railway company RZD uh, was was hit with some sort of attack that rendered their app inoperable so people could only buy tickets from the ticket counters at train stations.
1: Yeah, and that's a thing that has, you know, actual impact on on real people uh, so as denial of service go that's kind of unusual i mean normally we you know see much more ineffective denial of service so well targeted in that respect but yeah you're right the the change in hacktivism from being you know largely kind of a joke into and now a thing, being
0: mildly inconvenient oh my yeah. god it's cyber war <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly yes um, but also like pivoting a bit from just DDoS to you know like Guacamaya for example you know actually stealing data and doing meaningful things with it um, so you know there was definitely more sophistication in the hacktivist world well, and it's perfected in the number of stories we've got uh, yeah. this week to talk about
0: yeah so the Russian ISP Satcom ISP that was probably Ukraine Probably or Ukraine. pro-Ukrainian people. Friend this thing Ukraine. was the Ukrainian IT army, so claimed by Ukrainian hacktivists. And then we've got let's talk about sieged Sec because we've got some people doing you know apparent hacktivism in the United States, targeting states or more heavily targeting states that are implementing controls on uh, you know pregnancy terminations and gender affirming care. Uh, in, in those states, and this this group is now attacking them.
1: This particular group claims to be, like, a, a bunch of gay furries, so that seems pretty inventive. <laughs> I mean, why not?
0: Why not? It's 2023. But yeah, I,
1: I mean, the, the dual goals of, in hacktivism of doing computer crime in a way that you don't get caught and then also making a big song and dance out of it and getting this kind of social recognition, like, they are kind of conflicting goals, and this crowd has certainly been doing a lot of talking about it, um, you know some hacking as well, but the more you talk about it, the more likely you're going to get arrested and doing hacking inside the US against US, you know, official entities like the Nebraska judicial branch. Like you're kind of asking for the FBI to knock down your door and 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 make trouble for you and your friends. So we'll see whether yeah. it's real hacktivism or Russians. But my gut feel is actually,
0: I mean, Gokhamaya is real. Like you and I wound yes. up getting it on good authority that that's real.
1: Yes, yeah. And that that seemed to be the conclusion. Yes, that it felt real.
0: Yeah. We've even got more news stories uh, in this week's run sheet about, uh, you know, actually genuine hacktivists uh, like the Belarusian uh, group, the cyber partisans have hacked some sort of university and, you know, there's just a lot going on, uh, a lot going on. Now, look, moving away from hacktivists to actual cyber criminals, uh, we have more details now. Uh, The British courts have lifted a reporting restriction uh, on one of these lapsus kids Who's been charged with a whole bunch of offenses? They were apparently arrested last year and they're in a lot of trouble. Alexander Martin <laughs> uh, has written it up for the record, but this, it looks like this guy, uh, Kurtage, what's his name? Uh, Arian Kurtage. Uh, yeah, he's in all sorts of trouble and it looks like he was behind uh breaches at uber and we covered that one at the time that was what a day that was on twitter when <laughs> uber got owned sideways yeah. that was like we're all in the classroom and a, and a bird flew in you know it was that that was the <laughs> yeah. vibe uh then there was revolute and uh you know great the the developer of uh, grand theft auto uh you know that game studio but yeah he's in all sorts of trouble 12 12 charges he's 18 years old he's just turned 18.
1: Lucky him turning eighteen in jail and now can face face real charges. Because they also picked up a bunch of other lapsus Kids like some that are still underage, but I mean that was also the crew that hacked uh, Nvidia at the point in, at that point in time as well. So yeah, those kids are definitely definitely in trouble. I think there's, what five arrested in the UK, one in Brazil, something like that. Um, yeah, there so. were
0: five in the UK, two somewhere else, one. In, I don't know, but it looks like. By the looks of things, a lot more lapsus people were rounded up than we previously knew about, and there were reporting restrictions on this because they were kids.
1: Yes. yeah, You know, that's the
0: TLDR here. Uh, I don't know that he's in prison, though. You said he turned 18 in prison. I, 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 I don't see in the story that he's in prison.
1: Yeah, he may not, in fact, be in prison, but yeah, maybe he's in home arrest or whatever. Well, probably out on bail awaiting trial is yeah, my
0: likely, I guess. Yeah, but uh, just wanted to clarify that. Now, someone who's definitely in prison is Roger <laughs> Thomas Clark, who is also known as Variety Jones. This was Robert Ulbricht's right hand man in running uh, the Silk Road uh, drug marketplace. This is a terrific write up from Andy Greenberg, who has, of course, covered the Silk Road stuff uh, for a long time. You know, spent a lot of time in court and, you know, it's a sad read, really, because this guy is 62 years old. He's, he'd been in jail in Thailand for a while. He is gaunt, you know, by the time he wound up being flown back to the United States, he, he's rail thin, just looks like absolute shit. And now he's going to prison. He's 62 years old. He's going to prison for 20 years.
1: Yeah no it's a, it is a, it's pretty hard to read some of those particular details but then you also read the like this is the guy that pushed uh, Ulbricht into you know paying for murder for hire so you yes. know there's a degree of you know, yeah, the sympathy—the sympathy
0: sort of runs out uh, the further you read yes. uh, in this in this article, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. The one bit uh, that I think immediately leaped out to both of us in this piece of reporting, though, is some detail where the guy claimed uh, that he had bought some exploits to you know de anonymize people uh, from none other than the Grak, uh, yeah, in, in, so, in the, you know the so Thailand claimed- zero-day trading scene.
0: Yeah, yeah. So he claims he bought a bunch of Oday to de anonymize Tor users from Gruck and then gave it to UK and US law enforcement. Like, it's a claim that doesn't make much (laughs) sense. Gruck has has said, I don't know what the guy's on about. Yeah, yeah. Um, And the guy has made a whole bunch of other, like, absolutely ridiculous claims as well. So I I, I think it's bullshit. And yeah, it's just look, it's a it's a really interesting read. And this guy says that he he was involved with Silk Road because of his political belief that drugs should be you know decriminalized and whatever. But yeah, as you say, you read into it, and it's like he's he's pushing for murders and things like that. And you just think, well, you know, you're not very nice, are you? <laughs> you <laughs> exactly, probably do belong yes. in prison.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What else have we got here? Yeah, there was uh, so one of these ex uh, Group I B people has been arrested. Uh, Nikita Kislitsen, uh has been arrested and charged. I love the charges here because this is like straight out of a time warp. Uh, he's been charged with selling usernames and passwords belonging to American customers of the social media company Formspring in 2012. Uh, this is another uh, story from the record by uh, Darina Antoniuk, And uh, yeah, uh, he's in a bit of trouble. Now, what's interesting is that this guy was arrested in Kazakhstan And the US is seeking extradition, and it looks like that's going to be granted. Russia did what it normally does in this situation, which is to lodge a bunch of its own charges and try to get extradition of its citizen uh, back back to Russia. For a long time, people thought this indicated that Russia was trying to get back its criminal hackers because they're doing the bidding of the state or whatever. Tom Uren wrote an excellent edition of Seriously Risky Business last week, in which he argued that Russia's mostly doing this just to put it, finger in America's eye um, and also doing it because they're a bit embarrassed about their cybercrime thing and they would rather just, you know, handle it themselves um, kind of thing. But, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot to unpack on this one, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There certainly, there certainly is. And, I mean, you know, Group IB's tie-ups with all sorts of, you know, uh, people who are involved in the Russian cybercrime world and intelligence services, like keeping track of that web. I think would be a full-time, you know, you need a full-time analyst to keep track of that stuff. It's complicated. Um, but uh, yeah, no, you're. I think Tom's analysis of, you know, Russia's moves regarding extradition of its citizens, you know, from Kazakhstan, from other places like that, I think is bang on because it's like the simple answer of like, this is just kind of awkward, versus yeah. the you know machination grand conspiracy, and grand yeah. conspiracy. Like, yeah so I, I think i'm with tom on that one um well it's but also
0: yeah. a way it's also you know that 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 sort of lawfare approach of russia to say see we're a nation of laws we're trying <laughs> to extradite this person for computer crimes too you know it's just very very russian yeah and um yeah so there's yeah good right up there on the record what else have we got here we have a report again, <laughs> uh, Tom covered this while we were away, but we got some stats on the Encro chat. The Encro chat was a crime phone, sort of like Anom, sort of like, you know, uh, was it phantom secure and whatever. We finally have some statistics now out of European police. Now we thought Anom was amazing because there was something like 800 arrests in Australia and New Zealand. It looks like from the intelligence police gathered from the Encro chat uh, uh Infiltration, Um, they arrested 6,500 people, (laughs) including 197 high-value targets. They sentenced people to a combined 7,134 years of imprisonment, seized 740 million euros in cash, $150 150 million in frozen assets in bank accounts they 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 seized 100 13, tons of
1: cocaine
0: 103.5 tons of <laughs> cocaine 30 million pills 164 uh, tons of cannabis 3.3 3 tons of heroin nearly 1000 vehicles 271 estates or homes 923 weapons 20000 rounds of ammunition and 68 explosives <laughs> 83 boats 40 planes A Hundred Assassinations Prevented and a Patrick in pear (laughs) tree Just amazing I mean did your mind boggle and and what's amazing is that this happened some weeks after Tom wrote up for us a piece titled Crime Phones Are a Cop's Best Friend
1: (laughs) Yeah no, some of those numbers are just staggering I mean trying to imagine like tons of heroin is not normally a metric that uh, you know one considers it in and then A Hundred Assassinations Prevent Assassinations and A Hundred Assassinations Prevent like that's a metric that I don't know that I've ever read in a news story you know Um, so yeah Pretty seriously good police work there, and yeah, crime phones definitely a cop's best friend.
0: Well, especially considering just how free people who use them think they are to just say whatever they want. You know, yes, my favourite yeah. little detail about the anon one is how it would tag every single message with the GPS coordinates of the unit when the message was sent. <laughs> so that it would be someone's like sending their mate a picture of someone they just killed. Yeah, you know, and they'd have then the cops would have the picture. You know, the identity of the person sending it and the GPS coordination. You know, it just it's mind blowing stuff mind-blowing uh stuff now look just uh wanted to quickly mention this uh breached forums uh has been seized uh you know this is of course three months after the admin or the alleged admin was has been arrested it's already kind of sprung up in a reincarnated form but you do wonder How long that one will last? I think the fact that the FBI and and various global law enforcement agencies are are just continuously smashing these marketplaces, you do wonder how long the, the new one will stick around.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that kind of secession planning in a, you know, is a key part of being a, a you know a crime forum operator. I think the guy that's running the new one was pretty senior in the previous breach forum, so maybe there's some leads that uh, that they already have from that data, but yeah.
0: Or they're yeah. an FBI agent pretending to be. Or they're an FBI
1: person, agent you know? <laughs> pretending <laughs> to be. Um, what was interesting, I thought, was um, Alexander Martin, who wrote this up uh, for the record, uh, noting that there's been very little effect in the non-English-speaking crime forums world. We've seen so much you know, turmoil with brief forums and uh, raid forums and so on, whereas the Russian ones are just carrying on situation normal, no real impact, mm. um, which, you know, it's very nice to see these successes, but it's a good reminder that there's plenty of other non-English-speaking ones that are still super important.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's like any of these crime communities, right? And Silk Road was a good example of this, and, you know, subsequent marketplaces is, you know, there's there's always the rise and the fall, but yes. once one of them gets too powerful, like they do facilitate an awful lot of crime. Like, you know, your, your best case scenario is to have a bunch of little ones that almost yes. fly a little bit under law enforcement's uh, radar. Now, look, Speaking of the of the crime forums, Genesis market apparently is hitting all of the forums trying to sell off the business. and their business <laughs> uh, of course, was the, you know was the market itself, but they also had stuff like browser plugins that would allow people to mimic uh, certain browser profiles to bypass those sorts of checks when using stolen credentials, et etc. And um, yeah, they're trying, they're trying to sell it. The funny thing is though, their listings are getting booted off the forums. Because people don't trust that they're not FBI, um, so and of course you know Genesis Perfect. Market was disrupted by by the FBI. So now everyone's like, "Well, yeah, we don't, we just don't trust these listings." So this is another one by Alexander Martin. We have talked about a bunch of his stories this week, but I did I did get a chuckle out of this one.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's always nice seeing that kind of social cohesion breakdown as a result of uh, law enforcement actions. I think in this case they're trying to sell, like they say, the the darknet, like the the tour version uh, of. Genesis market is still up and functioning. They're trying to sell that as a going concern, plus all the other, you know, technical, all the other technological gubbins that you mentioned. But yeah, not not having a whole heap of luck.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, now let's talk about uh, TrueBot. Now, this is a particularly nasty bit of malware that tends to be used as an initial access uh, component um, for ransomware crews and whatnot. We've seen warnings out of uh, the Americans and the Canadians about this thing coming back and being spread around at the moment. It's actually being deployed via a vulnerability in a product made by this week's sponsor, Netrix. It's um, one of their uh, auditor products, um, server-side bug, And, you know, their advice, obviously, to mitigate this is, hey, maybe don't put your PAM auditing software on the internet, which I think seems (laughs) fairly sensible. Um, But, yeah, TrueBot's back, and it's a, um, you know, it's a a particularly nasty one, which I guess is why we're seeing the warnings here.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a one that's been around for a while in different forms and more traditionally, like, you know, email delivered, click on the bad thing, you know, get infected. But seeing it being, you know, actively... Exploiting bugs in server software is a bit of a kind of a twist for it, but there's also a strong tie-up between TrueBot and Clop, what we've seen TrueBot used by the Clop and Clop-affiliated people uh, for gaining initial entry to then go and steal data and so on. So it's one of those like likelihood is high and impact is high kind of thing, even if they're components that we've seen in other contexts already.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. Its context is everything, isn't it? Yes. Which is yeah. that, like they these people are not messing around.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, NSA has put out a really interesting mitigation guide on the Black Lotus uh, uh, malware. Now, this is malware that is like uh, UEFI based stuff, right? Like, yeah, Walk us correct. through this one.
1: Yeah. So this is uh, malware that we done we talked about it just before we went away. Um, uh, on break which was yeah, you know, infects the ufi process so that it can take control during boot up uh, and then getting rid of it's kind of difficult because of you know the complexities of getting stuff out of the ufi environment and the nsa's paper talks through like the practical reality of you know of hardening against this like what the options are for secure boot like which components of secure boot work well and like the secure boot as the whole ecosystem rather than just the specific technology and also like from a practical point of view you can read in the paper that the NSA has tried to do things like put custom root certificates in their boot up processor so only they can sign software that's going to be allowed to boot and so on and so forth and there's some you know, like this is practically quite difficult to do. And, like, you know, you get the impression that if the NSA can't ma- manage that, then probably not everyone else is going to. But it does have a bunch of practical advice for how to think about, you know, doing trusted boot uh, on your various platforms and not just on Windows, on Linux systems as well. So, NSA probably put a lot of thought into that. So, it's definitely well, but that's, worth a that's read.
0: That's why we're talking about it, because it seems quite a thoughtful document, yes.
1: doesn't it? Yeah, it, it, it feels born from practical experience. Yeah, um, there's some nuance in it,
0: and it's yes. and it's worth a look. So we've linked through to that in this week's show notes, and uh, I just wanted to include another yet another Alexander Martin story this week. Um, <laughs> apparently, uh, someone hacked exam boards in Britain and stole exams and then sold them to students online. <laughs> I only wanted to include this because that's very much like something from an '80s B movie.
1: Yes, yeah, um, exactly. Very enterprising. But it, yes, but it has
0: now <laughs> happened in real life. Uh, what else have we got? 125 million bucks in crypto stolen from Multichain, the multi-chain platform. That's going to buy a lot of ivory back scratches for the you know North Korean leadership, I'm yes. guessing. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, we were talking with Catalan, uh Kimpanu, our colleague, this morning, and uh, he's chasing down unconfirmed reports that there might be something like another hundred million gone from them. So you know the uh, clown show that is um, modern crypto uh, just continues. My apes. All liquidated, Adam. My apes have been liquidated. (laughs) I mean, I love it. I love that these combinations of words, you know, if you could send it back (laughs) in time and say there'd been a mass ape liquidation event and that that would make sense to thousands of people. You know, if you had told me that 10 years (sighs) ago, I would not have believed you. Anyway. Adam, uh, uh, that's actually it for the week's news. Uh, Thanks a lot for joining us. And, of course, um, you're doing more with us these days, which is something that I guess we can tell listeners. You're you're helping out a bit more at the old Risky Biz HQ. Uh,
1: Yes, I'm uh, picking up a bit more work. I'm actually now part-time with Risky Biz HQ, so I've got a bit more time on my plate to help out. And, like, it's... Just really interesting being exposed to some of the inner workings, like seeing Catalan uh, in real time in the Google Doc. It's just really interesting. So yeah, I'm I'm looking forward <laughs> yeah, to uh, contributing a bit more.
0: He's our 10x InfoSec journalist, is what we uh, <laughs> yeah, call
1: Catalan, yeah, exactly,
0: yeah, yeah. exactly. Just just you you stand back and behold, uh, <laughs> <laughs> basically. Yeah. yeah. Um. All right, mate. Um. Thank you so much, and uh, of course we'll be we'll be back on the show uh, next week. Thanks a lot for your time this week.
1: We certainly will, Pat, and I'll see you then.
0: That was CyberCX's Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. Big thanks to him for that. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Martin Canard, the VP of Product Strategy at Netrix. Netrix is a privileged access management or PAM vendor, and uh, they wound up acquiring our long-term sponsor, Remediant. And uh, they're really interested in pushing a PAM approach that involves ephemeral privilege or just-in-time privilege, as opposed to just using password vaults for everything, which is kind of how PAM worked 20 years ago. Here's Martin Kennard.
2: For a long time, we were the only ones, you know, that were really sort of trying to push this. I mean, us and Remediant, uh, which, of course, is now part of Netrix, but now other vendors are starting to follow soon. Um, I know two other um, big PAM companies are now starting to uh, take companies to what is called zero standing privilege. So it's a Gartner term. So this you know what we call uh, accounts that have their privileges always uh, on, if you like, are is standing privilege. Standing privilege is the attack surface. Zero standing privilege is a state. That's where you want to get to. And so certainly we're seeing other vendors starting to move into that because, you know, people are saying, "Well, why am I? Why am I just sitting around managing this problem?" I mean, it's it's the same sort of thing with with a lot of the things that we do in the world today. I mean, we want things at the point of time we need them. We want to. We're, we're consumers. We're we're real time people. I want information. I Google it. Mm. I I you know get that information straight away. And it's it just it's just a natural progression. I think so. There's obviously a usability aspect to this. There's a management aspect. But more importantly, there's a security aspect as well. Because if you remove that privilege, that means you're cutting off a large chunk of um, a component that's generally used for lateral movement attacks.
0: Yeah, I mean, I absolutely see the value in this goal, right? Which is zero standing privilege is where everybody should strive to be. The problem is, and it's a simple, simple problem... Uh, You can't really do that because of machine-to-machine accounts, right? So when you look at service accounts and things like that, this is the last frontier of stuff that you just can't remove its privilege. You can't easily do it on demand. I mean, this is a conversation I've had with your colleagues in the past where, okay, if you've got something doing, uh, you know, point-in-time scans or point-in-time backups, you know, you can set it up to provision uh, those accounts with privilege for a certain window, but even then, you've got an attacker who sees this privilege rolling around once every 24 hours or once every three days. You know, you, 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 you're you kind of back to square one. I mean, I just think about some of the problems happening right now with uh, Fortinet devices getting owned, right? And people are grabbing the service account. They're a domain-joined appliance. They're grabbing the service account, which has privilege, and they're using that to move onwards uh, to to great victory, right? So, you know, where is the PAM industry Currently, like, how is the Pam industry trying to address that last mile problem of of service accounts and 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 domain joined, you know, appliances and machine to machine privileged accounts?
2: So, one of the things that, that can be done with that is uh, really the ability to start moving to uh, ephemeral identities. So, you know, that they you're not just saying, okay, well, I'm going to add and remove permissions because, like you say, there's there's latency involved there. There are ways, you know, I mean, with a lot of different types of service accounts where you need that privilege to be always available for a period of time. But there are some mechanisms, there's some ways in which you can stage accounts. You know, you can almost, if you like, have a, think of a hopper of, a, of accounts that are set up, that are ready to use, that are pulled out, consumed by, you know, your machine to machine, you know, application. So they, they pull an identity, they use him Once they finish, they throw it away. Um, you know, so the part of the benefit of that means that, you know, it means that you actually have something where instead of just saying, Okay, well here is um you know an account and give me a credential to be able to use it and all of those permissions be in there, it also means that you can actually give the right level of permissions. So it means that, you know, you have different types of applications, things that need different types of permissions, which invariably we always tend to give things the highest level of permission. We give them local administrator. We give them, you know, we give them root. You know, we give them sometimes domain admins, you know. But, you know, without thinking about, well, there's a way of, you know, pulling down that exact level of privilege that's actually required for that particular session. And so I think part of certainly what we're doing is, you know, we've we've essentially built an orchestration system. That's really what our, our product is. It's an engine. It's not really a, but well, it is a pan product. But it's something that allows you to be able to orchestrate a whole sequence of events or a sequence of things, if you like, that of what you need at the point of time you need it, that we can remove afterwards. And that can be accounts, it can be permissions. We can turn services off and on. We can turn RDP off when you're not using it. RDP is a ransomware distribution protocol. Hmm. Um, you know, it's a brute force attack surface, but we leave it running twenty four seven because we don't think there's another option. We can turn it off when it's not being used. Turn it on when you need it, turn it off. So again, those are just examples of what you can orchestrate. So it's all about identity orchestration to create the account or the identity that you need, privilege orchestration to give it the right level of privilege, and then environmental orchestration to be able to build some controls around how you're actually going to use that.
0: I mean, this doesn't solve the Fortinet appliance getting owned uh, part of it, but I mean, the, the most solid argument I've heard that, I, you know, and I'm not saying we throw our hands up in the air and we say, oh, well, let's not do privilege management. Let's not embrace this uh, concept of ephemeral privilege, right? Because it's a, it's a good idea. But I think the strongest argument for it, knowing that we're still going to have these weak points, is that, you know, if you are managing privilege well with a system like this and with thinking like this, it makes the telemetry, that you get from observing the privileged accounts that are left over um, a lot easier to manage. And, uh, you know, you can, you can see bad stuff a lot easier when you're not dealing with just insane volumes of dodgy looking stuff happening all the time. Right.
2: Yeah. It, it, it's like eating an elephant, you know, one bite at a time. I mean, you know, you have to, to you have to start somewhere, you know, mm-hmm. and it's all about, you know, really you, you you start removing what you can remove. I mean, start with the highest value assets first, domain admin accounts. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, anybody compromise the domain admin account and those are the ones that are generally someone's gonna go after in a last movement attack. Well we saw that we so, saw that with the
0: stop. Vault Typhoon stuff, right? Where people were running um, you know, various native tools on Windows domain controllers and stuff and that was
2: Yeah. Terrible. Oh yeah. I mean someone someone gets on a domain controller, I mean it's a very bad day, you know, and so you know that that's you know when I look at security, I always think it's like a prescriptive mechanism. I mean, there is a thousand and one different things that you can do. There's a thousand and one things that you can do, but it it's all. I mean, you start with the highest value assets first. You know the low hanging fruit. Where, where am I going to get for the least amount of effort the biggest impact that I need to be able to do? And you start working through that in the list. And you know very often it it's dealing with um, you know identities. To your point where there's a lot of them so domain admins all right there's not that many of them but sometimes there are there's a lot of local admins yeah i mean as as you start to reduce down that pool to your point that's when you, you're cutting out the noise so yeah, yeah you can't do everything but it means that you're providing a little bit of clarity and control over those areas that you can't necessarily make ephemeral
0: Well, I mean, one of the things that we all like always liked about Remedian and the company that you were with that got acquired, also got acquired by Netrix, was uh, Stealthbit, I believe. Uh, Similar approach, right? Which is this idea that you can drop something in. Like password vaults are fiddly, right? Whereas these things, uh, you could just drop them in and it gets you a long way very quickly. It doesn't solve all your problems, right? But what does, you know? And the idea that you could just, um, yeah, do PAM easily via uh, uh, this type of orchestration, um, you know, I think that's the, that's really the appeal, isn't it?
2: Well, and the key thing that we did was we added a vault, you know, as much as I always said, look, you don't need a vault. And I, you know, developed this concept, even trademarked the term BYOV, bring your own vault, um, you know, where you could connect to somebody else's vault. Um, but the thing is a lot of people want the comfort blanket of a vault. They mm. want to be able to see if they can do it the old way. And that's, that's always been the challenge. You know, when you come up with something that's new, innovative, every, you know, person on a call is going to say, this is fantastic. I've even actually had a round of applause at the end of a demo, which I have never had with any other product. And, and, and yet, you know, sometimes in the early days, the uptake was very, very slow because... People didn't want to be that bleeding edge person that brings something in and, you know, is this something I need? So that was why we felt it was very important to build a full-blown PAM solution that does everything pam everything from, mm. you know, the video well, I mean, that's, recording. That's Netrix's
0: whole thing, right, is to be the big PAM company with all of the different ways that you can do PAM.
2: Yeah, well, you you want to, you want to. I mean, so it's all about having something that can cover those, but you want to drive someone towards a best practice. Yeah, you know, so you want to be able to say, look, you're kind of guiding people along a path. I mean, people do silly things. I mean, I, you, you can stop. You know, the way that people use tools, people will try to circumvent them, no matter how many controls you put in. But at the same time. I, I feel that it's it, it's something that if we make security easy to use, we make it easy to consume. Uh, we make it easy for end users to use; they're more likely to embrace it. Every administrator has Pam PTSD. I mean, no one, absolutely no one, likes Pam. You know, no. it, it's one of those really interesting things. I mean, you're selling a product that no one likes. Philip Lieberman. I mean, you know, we owned Lieberman Software years ago before they were acquired by Bumgar. He used to say that nobody puts in a PAM solution because they want to. They put in a PAM solution because they're told to. Mm. Because PAM solutions stop people from doing the job. People just want, I'm a DBA, I want to mess around with databases. I'm a network device admin, I want to get, they yeah, there's just always want to the, do stuff.
0: The groaning eye roll uh, of having to actually hit the PAM speed bump. But look, I, I got one last line of questioning that I want to hit you with here. Which is that now we've moved to this sort of orchestration-based, you know, uh, just-in-time privilege sort of thing. Why is the natural home of this function not with the IDP companies, you know, like your Octas and whatnot? Why have they not done stuff like this? I mean, maybe they are doing some PAM stuff and I just don't know. But I would have thought the natural home, uh, you know, uh, for this type of product would be with the IDP vendors. Why, Why is that not the case?
2: So, OXA have tried with ASA, um, you know, where where they actually have a, uh, it's almost like a token-based access control um, to to servers, you know, Windows and Linux. Um, But the thing is, is they are really the sort of custodians of the identity as opposed to necessarily those downstream entitlements. Now, that said... um, as you know, NetRigs does, we know we've acquired um, an identity company, so we are now an identity management. But vendor. that's what I
0: mean, like it's a different thing. But you would think that it's a logical place to sort of glue these two things together, it would be on the identity side. Well, it the is. Side, I mean, right? so
2: ultimately, so so what we're dealing with though is is we're dealing with uh, almost like a future state where we do need that merge of those areas together. To your point, yeah, absolutely, of yeah. the identity is really where it lives. But we're in a world where ninety nine percent you know of the even the, the the companies that have PAm at the moment are just storing these things in in vaults with persistent privileges on all of those accounts. And so really sometimes, you know we have to kind of we have to find a way of moving people to some of these new methodologies. Now there's always going to be you know, sort of different things that we can add in, different combinations that we will be able to say, look, instead of actually having a PAM solution, identity solution with your skim, a share table integration, trying to do attestation up here and swap permissions down here, let's have a central set of entitlements. That's definitely the future state where we should be going to. But at the moment, we're in this sort of transition where we, we have to kind of, like to your point, we have to drag people kicking and screaming from their old notion of PAM into this new mindset. You know, once I think it becomes more pers- you know, uh, pervasive, you know, you, you know, people are using it more and more, um, as you say, you know, a lot of the large vendors are also now adding zero standing privilege support. Um, it'll become a thing, you know, it will gain its momentum and, and that will mm. then drive, I, I think, a whole lot of areas. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, outside of privilege, think of networking. Um, you know, about where we actually do, you know, we have static routes on networks. Um, why not actually dynamically build a route when you need it and tear it down when you finish?
0: Well, there's some companies doing stuff like that, right? So you've Zero got this networks, yeah. Zero Networks, who I think yep. we've just signed up as a sponsor, actually, because I, I had a call with the founder. Adam and I both had a call with the founder, uh, recently had a good chat uh, with them. And it is interesting. And I think we're moving to a point, too, where we're going to start doing... You know authorization of individual actions and executions and things like that like cmd uh on the linux side we're doing duo push to authenticate like sudo right, um, right. On, on linux boxes and I, I i yeah i definitely see the same possibilities i think honestly the a reason a lot of the idps aren't going down this road is because of the number of different technologies that have to support and it's just too hard and they're making lots of money doing identity anyway right so
2: Oh yeah, the, the, there's a lot of technical debt tied up in you know that. I mean, in terms of platform support, old platform support. Yes. I mean, you know, you've got. Yeah. If you're after, do you really running... want to
0: be? Do you really want to be going and building support for a lot of this stuff,
2: right? Probably, Probably yeah. not. I mean, you've got places running, you know, Windows 2003 and you know, yeah. I mean, 2008, not even R2 or even Land Manager yeah, yeah, yeah. and <laughs> OS2 in data. You know, it's, it's, it's no, a one, scary no one world wants the it.
0: headache except for you, uh, Martin yeah. Canard. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Dan. Uh, to have this conversation uh an interesting conversation about uh you know where all this could be going cheers you're welcome That was Netrix's Martin Cannard there with a chat about what's up with Pam. Big thanks to him for that and big thanks to Netrix for being this week's sponsor. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Seriously Risky Business podcast in the Risky Business News RSS feed. Uh, I do that one with Tom Uran every week. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.